The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. All right, let's go now to James chapter 2. We're continuing our series called Dirty Faith, and um, I look forward to breaking this passage open this morning, and we'll do so uh, in a timely manner. Uh, So let's look at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, oh, well, you have faith, I have works. Well, James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you, you're, you're, um, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. <laughs> do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was um, completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Pray with me. Father, we need need our hearts to be opened to this teaching. Uh, Father, we need the evil one to be absent from this teaching. We need your spirit to speak clearly and directly, to lead into God, to soften our hearts, to move us out, to, to show us both our arrogance and where we lack faith. Oh God, would you work among us? Do so for your glory. Make much of Jesus in this place today and in our hearts and minds. And God, you know I need you. And so I beg for your strength. And I beg for your presence. I do so for your glory, the good of your people. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've all been, probably, most of us have either been tested for COVID or we've been with somebody getting tested for COVID. And we know the drill. Early on, at least, you drove up into the testing site. Uh, You basically just let them swab your nostrils, uh, sometimes in a very painful way. Um, And then you go home and you wait for that email or that call or that text. And, And it's either positive or negative. Well, this morning, James sets up a kind of testing center. (laughs) And what he's testing is the validity of our faith. He's really talking to church people. He's talking to us that say we believe, but he says, you know, 
there's some that say they believe, but they don't really believe. And friends, this is important uh, because what he's saying is, is that there are some in this life that think that they are alive when they're actually dead. They think that they are fruit-bearing when they're actually barren. And this passage is not to, I don't want to say scare you so much as it is to give you hope. Because James has already told us in James 1.18 these words. He said, he chose to give us birth. Those that are saved, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all the created. God has birthed us to life. If a child is born and, and he or she is not crying, he or she is not breathing, there is great concern because you expect a child to be moving, to be screaming, to be running, to be kicking because that is the sign of life. And just as a baby acts in that capacity at birth, so we as believers are to be alive, but we are to be alive to Jesus and in a very specific way that James points out here. And it's not, it's important because as James asked twice in this passage, what good is it, my brothers, if you have a dead faith? It's no good to you, it's no good to God, and it's certainly no good to your neighbor. So this is important, and we need to dive in and see what he is talking about. And the first thing we need to see is that true and living faith must work you can't have faith unless it's working. Let me illustrate this. Sergi, that man loves to grill. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't followed him on Instagram, uh, Chef Boy Sergi, you're missing out. And uh, he, matter of fact, he grilled for our Discover Seminar this afternoon. So if you're in the Discover Seminar, you're going to get a little taste of his passion and his love. And that's really my point is that because Sergi loves grilled meat, he loves to grill. Because he believes that grilled meat is excellent and glorious, he loves to grill. And because he loves to grill and because he loves grilled meat, that man has bought at least two different grills since I've known him in the past year and a half or so. The man loves to grill, and his faith and his love explode into work and action in a very good and redemptive way. And you see, that is what James is saying. James put, or Jesus put it like this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He didn't say, obey my commandments to prove you love. He said, if you love me, if I've got your heart, I've got your actions. Because it's impossible, impossible to not give yourself to that which you love. That's the whole point here with the demons. Let's compare the demons. That Their theology is dead on. They believe that God is one. They have been in the throne room of God. They've got better theology than Sergi or Richard Reeves. But what, what are they missing? They're missing love. <laughs> you see, the demons believe in God like the android believes in the iPhone. It knows it's superior. <laughs> and it wants to beat it. It wants to compete. It wants to be superior. 
And that's what James is talking about. That's where the demons are. Um, James makes this point that love is what distinguishes us. In James 1.12, he says, the one who loves God is the one who's going to receive the crown of glory. It's not the one who just has his Reformed theology tight. It's the one who may have his theology tight, but he's got his heart set on Jesus. He is impacted, existentially impacted by the realities of his theology, the realities of who God is and so forth. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith for faith. Why? Because as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous live by faith because when we believe the gospel narrative, we can't help but do something. When you believe that you were dead in your sin, that there was nothing you could do but sin, that literally you were an enemy of God Oh, but God sent his son, Jesus, in the flesh to live the life you could never live, to live under the law that, that he might literally stand before the Father and say, if Richard Reeves accepts me, if Richard Reeves loves me, then this is his record right here. It's my finished life. It's my finished work. And Jesus crossed every T and dotted every I of the law from his heart to his mind to his soul. To his actions. He did it for me. And if we understand that Jesus then became our sin and he, he was cursed on the cross, he was uh, publicly humiliated, but he suffered the very essence of hell for me, for pitiful old me, then I can't help but do something because love works. Faith and love work. We see this in parenting. It's, it's bad. You can't, it's not good parenting to only focus on the behavior. You have to focus on the heart. You got to focus on what the behavior, where it's coming from. You got you to focus on the OS, on the operating system, not just the behavior. We've learned that from our legalistic generation two or three before us. You see, they were good at getting children to obey. That was really my generation. We could get our children to obey, but I learned, um, thank God, soon enough that that wasn't enough because I, I kept watching, and, and Rachel and I kept seeing children that obeyed, went to church, were involved in everything until the first day of college, and all of a sudden, who are these children? Oh, they're the same children. Their hearts were never one for Jesus. Their behavior was controlled, but their hearts hadn't changed. And so, friends, that is what, this is what James is saying is that, man, if your heart has changed, if you've fallen in love with Jesus, if you know the gospel narrative and you received it, then you've got to be working. There has to be some transformation. There has to be some change from the inside out. There has to be some evidence. But then secondly, true faith must work in a specific direction. And Man, we need to hear this specific direction. Terry Shoemaker He's a, I'd never heard of him, but I came across an article he wrote. He apparently is a lecturer at Arizona State, and he was writing uh, based on, uh, wrote an article based on a new study 
by the Public Religion Research Institute 2020 Census on American Religion. And the title of his article is Why Some Younger Evangelicals Are Leaving the Faith. And that census points out that um, today, or I guess in 2020, 14% of Americans identified themselves as uh, white evangelicals. And they said this was alarming because in 2006, 23% of Americans identified as a white evangelical. But if you dig a little deeper, what you see is that really it's the, the older uh, generations, my generation, that is identifying as white evangelical, but the younger, um, um, you know, younger generations are not. As a matter of fact, one in four of Americans, mostly younger, but not only younger, identify as a nun, meaning they have no faith. They don't have none. They ain't got nothing. They just, you know, have their own philosophy of life, figure out who you are, figure out what you believe, and, and live it. 25%. And, um, and, and basically, these are those they're, they're calling, many of them are, are being called ex-evangelicals. They're ex-evangelicals. And he interviewed several people, but one young girl in Kentucky who grew up in the church, grew up in an evangelical church, wrote this. She said, part of me likes the idea of church, but I like the idea of just helping people more. I would say that really is the religion, or at least the stated commandment of um, those that are spiritually inclined in our country. She said, that's my idea of what a Christian um, is someone who helps others. And then she goes on. The way that the church operates in Kentucky is so backwards. It's all about itself, all about pleasing yourself. It's all white, middle to upper class people watching a big screen with a full band. And I think that's probably the opposite of what Jesus wanted. And friends, her sentiment resonates with downtown church because that is probably why if you're a member of downtown church, if you're here, especially if you're younger, you are identifying with this whole reality that, you know, the other churches aren't caring about the poor. The other churches are not, you know, seeking justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. Those other churches aren't doing it. And that's probably why you're here. But there's a danger in that, too. Because the danger is to just be about helping people. And that can be just... A, a whole nother legalism that can be just as destructive as the legalism of our parents and, and generations prior. And, and friends, what we want to see at downtown church and what we're going through in our, and we go through in every Discover seminar is this whole reality that helping others, laying our lives down for others is not a work that saves you. But if you're saved, if you understand the gospel, then you must. That is where it, the gospel takes you. And that's what James is talking about here. So what's the answer? We have to be both Pauline, we got to be of Paul and James. Because, you know, here's what James says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You're like, what? There it is. I mean, especially if you're skeptical here today, I told you the Bible, it contradicts itself. No. What we're seeing here and the, the, the principle of hermeneutics, the hermeneutical principle of how you study your Bible is you never just take one verse that's called eisegesis and it will lead to heresy and it will lead you far away from Jesus 
and, and the love of God. What you have to do is interpret Scripture with Scripture because it's, it's meant to be taken as a whole, not just one passage or one text or, or, and so forth. And, and, and what we see is basically what James is saying is if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and you were a sinner, you were dead on the bottom of the sea and God came down and raised you up and breathed in life into your body, and in fact, you were an enemy uh, uh, holding on to the bottom of the sea as he was coming after you saying, no, 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 I can save myself. And God came after you. When you understand that, there's a fruit. And that fruit is called mercy. I saw, we just celebrated or commemorated, celebrates the wrong word, we just commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I've watched a couple documentaries, and one was done by 60 Minutes. And they interviewed a female fire person who that day of 9-11 was the only person in her squadron that stayed back. She was either sick or she had to do something um, at the firehouse or whatever. And her, she, in the second um, tower, she lost her entire squad, squadron, all the firemen in her firehouse. And she talked about, you can guess, how she is struggling with guilt. The guilt of, why me? Why did I survive and none of them did? And friends, she's not going to get the answer to that. But that's exactly where we should be as Christians. Why me? Why would God choose me? Why would God direct my life? As I look at my family, I'm like, why me, God? Because I was not raised in a Christian home. I was not raised like these um, blessed babies and children that were up here this morning. I wasn't raised expected to trust Jesus. In fact, I was raised uh, really by one of my parents to, to run as far away as I possibly could from Jesus. Why me? Why? It makes no sense, God. Oh, but I have an answer of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dying dead in transgressions. It is by grace I have been saved. And then 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul uses this. He points to the grace of Christ to stir up mercy and compassion to make a donation to the poor. He says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus didn't just say, come and join my riches. He became poor for me. Jesus became poor for me, that I might be rich. Jesus humbled himself under the law that he is the essence of. He humiliated. The God himself took on flesh to obey laws that were the essence, that simply were the reflection of his nature and character. And he did it for me, and he did it for you. And God went to the cross and became my sin and received the wrath and the betrayal of his father that I might never be betrayed by the father. 
And friends, that should lead me somewhere. It should lead me to deeds of mercy. You see, mercy goes to the poor and the hurting because I should see myself as one who was poor and hurting, who has been made rich by the grace and mercy of God out of absolutely no other motivation but His goodwill and His love. And how in the world can I receive that? And how in the world can I be thinking about and celebrating and glorying in that reality and it not open my eyes to my neighbors who are hurting and poor physically, literally, in that way? Here's a definition of mercy. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. What do we hear so many people saying today? It's not my responsibility. I'm not the cause of that. James says you can do the worst harm by doing nothing. What good is it, my brothers, if you just go to one who's come to you and says, man, I'm cold, and it's, it's, you know, 10 degrees outside, and I'm hungry, I hadn't eaten in a week. What good is it for you to lay your hand on them and say a prayer for them? James said, that's not, that's not Jesus' Christianity. That has nothing to do with why Jesus came to live and die and rise. He came to make all things new that we might be, including us, that we might be the first fruits of his creation, therefore showing forth his love and mercy, giving people a taste of the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no need and there will be no hunger and there will be no one cold. Why? Because we are responding to what God has done for us. And then thirdly and finally, I told you we had to move quick. True living faith accompanied by faith-motivated acts is just biblical. I can't tell you how many times I've been accused. I, I can't, let me just say this. I, when I preach passages like this, or the, you know, the whole concept of justice, I can't tell how many people come to me and say, just preach Jesus. And what the Bible is saying is you can't preach Jesus without preaching compassion and mercy. You can't do it. Now, you can preach compassion and mercy without preaching Jesus. You can do that. But you can't preach Jesus without preaching compassion and mercy, without preaching justice. You can't do it. Why? Because Justice and mercy and love and compassion is at the very heart of who God is. That's why there will be no more death and no more pain. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more hunger. There won't even be night in heaven. Why? Because that's the new heaven and the new earth. That's where we're going for. That's our hope. And we are his first fruits now to be displaying that to the world around us. Out of how he has already displayed it to us. Um, through living faith. I checked, and and he points to Abraham and and Rahab, and we don't have time to jump into that, but I'll I'll just use this illustration. Why is he pointing to Abraham who, you know, went on Mount Moriah, had the knife over his son Isaac, and God says, stop! And then Rahab who hid the um, spies that Joshua had sent into the promised land. Why is he lifting these two up? Well, here's a good illustration. My, or here's an illustration I've got for you. Uh, I, I checked my mother into a nursing home um, f- 
Friday. So she got out of the geriatric psych um, hospital she's been in for um, a month. It's hard to believe. And we got her into a nursing home in a memory care unit. And I was talking to the um, admissions person, and and she was asking me, was anybody going to come visit her? And I said, yeah, well, my family will, and her husband, John. And I said, in fact, her husband, 87-year-old husband, has already practiced driving out there three times. And this is what the woman said. She said, my, my, what, how he must love her. Man, that stuck with me. Because why? What is she saying? Love sacrifices. Love does something. Love dies. That man shouldn't even be driving a car. 87 years old. I've tried to take his keys. I did once. I'm scared of that man. What he might do to me. And yet he has practiced three times. And yesterday we went to see her. And she made me, he made me drive so he could see exactly how to get there. Because he got lost the three times that he tried to find her. Lord have mercy. Dear friends, we can't say we love God and we could care less about our neighbor. We can't say we love God. We can't fool ourselves. It's a lie of the devil. It's not, it's not conservative, progressive. It, it's not Democrat, liberal, libertarian. It is the Bible. And Republican, the Republican Party is not loving the poor, okay? You know, the Democratic Party is not loving the poor. The libertarians are not loving... The church, that's who's called to love the poor. It's you and me. There is, it's the most non-political statement I can possibly make. It is a gospel statement. If you know the love of Jesus, you will love your neighbor. So what's the answer to this? Go sign up to be a mentor at Streets? Maybe. But that's not the first thing. The first thing is to fall passionately in love with Jesus. <laughs> Open your hearts to him. Practice it. And friends, you're going to need to do that more than just right here in this room. You're going to need to do it tomorrow, especially if you're loving the poor. I think that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are, are um, uh, the merciful. Why? Because when you are steering your life into the, those that, that are needy and, and hurting and, and need help, then you are going to literally be offloading their pain onto your back. And you're going to be mourning with them. And it's hard. And it's a lot. It's much more fun to go to a lake or go to a swimming pool or go to a restaurant than to do this. And yet Jesus said, it would have been a whole lot better for me to stay in glory than to come save your sorry person. And that is what James is saying. Look at what God has done for you. Not leave here feeling bound by guilt. Understand that's how much God loves you and then go love somebody. Dear friends, may we be marked by this reality. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Lord, thank you that you indeed have redeemed us from the pit, and we have hope.
Lord, I pray that some in this place might believe for the first time. I pray that you, by your Spirit, have worked in all of our hearts to see how high, wide, and deep and long is your love for us. Oh, God, I pray that we would respond to your love by going out and loving. Father, may the world know that you are God by the apologetic of our kindness and our sacrifice and our simple acknowledging the humanity of those who are hurting around us. Oh, God, may it be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, uh, may we respond to the grace and mercy of God by bringing our tithes and offerings, and we may do so by uh, placing physical checks or money in the uh, green baskets in the back on the way out or by texting um, the uh, number on the screen. And uh, because we are out of time, we are literally going to stand for the benediction and be dismissed. Dear friends, receive God's blessing as we go out into the world to serve Him and to show forth His love to those around us. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he indeed lavish you with his peace that we might be an element of peace in the world this week and so far beyond. Amen. Amen.